brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At the heart of America is a dirty and shameful reality. Everyone knows it exists. But the devastating impact that is left on generations of people has been glossed over and even ignored especially by those who still benefit from it. Our American history is rooted in racism. More obvious chapters include the decimation of Native American populations, slavery, segregation, and the Jim Crow era. Most Americans have learned about, or at least heard of these events. But ask them about the eugenics movement, or when homegrown extremists filled Madison Square Garden for a Nazi rally, or how Henry Ford's hatred of Jews helped inspire Adolf Hitler, and you're likely to get a blank stare. It's time to explore these overlooked events that don't make it into our history books and correct the record for the people harmed by them, to trace our past to modern tragedies and learn how folks over the centuries have fought back. We need to confront our racist history so that we might have a chance to defeat it once and for all. I'm Christian Picciolini, a former white supremacist who became an anti-racist activist and a bringer of hard truths. On each episode of F Your Racist History, you'll learn about America's conveniently overlooked racist origin stories. Join me as we yank off the hood and expose the lies behind some of America's so-called triumphs and heroes. Warning. This episode contains scenes that depict violence and death you'll probably also get really pissed off. I can't breathe. George Floyd said it 26 times before taking his last breath, all while a white police officer knelt on his neck, killing him. The relationship between American law enforcement and people of color is a deep, festering wound. And if we trace our nation's policing back to its earliest roots, we can see how poisonous it truly is. 
Since the 2020 murder of George Floyd by former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, I Can't Breathe has become a global rallying cry for those who support anti-racism and the fight for civil rights and equal justice. This tragic incident, one of arguably thousands like it around the country, which ultimately found Chauvin guilty of murder, forced a national debate on methods of policing that have long gone unchecked and unpunished. And it brought global attention to the harassment, abuse, and harm black and brown people have endured at the hands of police throughout American history. I Can't Breathe was initially adopted as a protest call after a New York City police officer killed another black man named Eric Garner in 2014. Former officer Daniel Pantaleo held 43-year-old Garner in a chokehold on the ground while initiating an arrest on suspicion of him illegally selling loose cigarettes, a misdemeanor violation. He told police, I can't breathe, 11 times before losing consciousness and never waking up. No charges were ever brought against Pantaleo for Garner's death, and it took over five years for the NYPD to terminate his employment. Two days after Pantaleo's firing, Sergeant Kizzy Adonis, who had arrived on the scene as officers pressed Garner to the ground and had been charged with multiple counts of failure to supervise, made a deal to forfeit just 20 vacation days to keep her job. This means only two of the dozen or so officers involved in Eric Garner's arrest and his death have faced any penalty. Another case that sparked outrage and galvanized many into action was the killing of Trayvon Martin. The Black Lives Matter movement, which protests incidents of police brutality and racially motivated violence, was formed in 2013 after Trayvon Martin's killer, George Zimmerman, was acquitted. Though not a police officer, but instead a civilian coordinator of an unofficial neighborhood watch, Zimmerman fatally shot the unarmed 17-year-old Martin in 2012 and claimed self-defense under Florida's stand-your-ground law, which provides that people can use deadly force when they reasonably believe it's necessary to defend themselves against deadly force. Martin's only aggression that fateful night was that he was black and walking alone. Today, Black Lives Matter activists seek to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities. It's a movement to respond to and work to change the harsh realities that communities of color face. They shed light on injustices, as well as things like the talk, the difficult but necessary conversation black and brown parents have with their young children about what to do and what not to do when interacting with the police, because their life could depend on it. Dear child. Dear child. Dear child. The reason we have to have this talk is because you are a black child in America. Hands up in the air or on a steering wheel where officers can see them at all times. No sudden movements. Ask for permission to reach for something and clearly explain what you're doing when you move. Be respectful. Comply. I'm black male, green shirt, blue pants. 
down Craig Street, all units north and emergency. Children of color must memorize this code of conduct and carry it with them throughout their lives. Because as countless injuries and deaths at the hands of police and vigilantes have proven, those sworn to serve and protect can't always be relied on to serve and protect them. 223, dispatch, shot, fire. Subject is down. And as many cases of police brutality have shown us, even following the instructions of the talk will not always guarantee safety or life. By speaking truth to power, Black Lives Matter has been met with much criticism and resistance. After all, for every legitimate action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Blue Lives Matter, an affront to Black Lives Matter, which Blue Lives Matter denies, was formed in December 2014, following the murder of two New York City police officers. Officers Rafael Ramos and Wenzhen Liu were shot and killed while sitting in their patrol car in Brooklyn. The perpetrator, Abdullah Brinsley, a black man, posted on Instagram that the murders were revenge for the police slayings of unarmed black men. Even though ambush killings of police had actually declined more than 90% since 1970, Blue Lives Matter supporters rallied, as did white supremacists who saw it as an opportunity to radicalize jaded white cops. Some U.S. states even began passing laws to categorize physical attacks on law enforcement officers as hate crimes. Meanwhile, states like South Carolina, Arkansas, and Wyoming still don't have hate crime laws for bias against citizens. Hmm. Given the timing of Blue Lives Matter's establishment and their co-opting of the acronym BLM, its actual purpose as an opposition group to Black Lives Matter appears thinly veiled. Blue Lives Matter seems hell-bent on preserving the policing status quo, meaning upholding long-standing dehumanizing and white supremacist practices in law enforcement. Their insignia is a black and gray variation of the American flag with a distinctive thin blue line in the middle, a reference to the belief that police are the only protection between society and outright chaos. In an ironic twist, pro-police insurrectionists at the January 6th attack on the Capitol actually beat Capitol Police with Blue Lives Matter flags. How's them apples? Then, there are the Oath Keepers, formed in 2009. This right-wing anti-government paramilitary group believes a new world order led by the, quote, liberal elite is threatening to destroy America's constitutional republic. They, like Blue Lives Matter sympathizers and white nationalists, falsely claim Black Lives Matter is an anti-white Marxist terror organization set out to destroy American values, i.e. white American values. What makes this extremist militia particularly dangerous is that they focus their recruitment efforts primarily on current and former law enforcement officers, military servicemen and women, and first responders. The Oath Keeper's main pretext is claiming to uphold their oath to protect the U.S. Constitution from all enemies foreign and domestic, even if it means disobeying direct orders from superior officers 
or marginalizing other Americans in the process. They infamously showed up in Ferguson, Missouri, in support of law enforcement after police shot and killed a young black man named Michael Brown in 2014. Several Oath Keepers leaders and members, along with Blue Lives Matter supporters, have also been charged in connection with the January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol building and Capitol Police earlier this year. Alongside them in their siege, a host of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and conspiracy theorists. Black Lives Matter and many civil rights activists argue that police violence against people of color is a systemic problem hundreds of years old. In other words, the roots of this tree are rotten. On the other hand, Blue Lives Matter claims that cases like those of Eric Garner and George Floyd resulted from outliers and rogue officers, a few bad apples, while conveniently ignoring the full proverb that one bad apple spoils the whole barrel. They say our law enforcement system is inherently good, that it's law enforcement officers who need protection from violent criminals. And, if our prison population is any indication of who law enforcement and our justice system consistently and historically perceive as violent criminals, it's people of color. Who is right? Is the problem with individual bad cops Or is it that the entire system they are trained in and come from is rooted in white supremacy and will inevitably produce rotten fruit? How did we arrive at this moment in time? To understand the origin of American law enforcement, we first have to understand the origin story of our American laws. For that, we have to go way back to before the formation of the United States. We have to get colonial. This is episode two of F Your Racist History, the racist history of American law enforcement. British colonization of the Americas began in 1607 with the formation of the first colony at Jamestown, Virginia. By the early 1700s, the British had successfully dominated the North American continent and established 13 colonies. Back then, Colonial America's entire legal policing system was adapted from English law. No surprise there, since America was still a collection of English colonies at the time. Urban centers had different needs than rural communities, as did the northern colonies and southern colonies. The northern colonies, whose economies were based mainly around shipping and mercantilism, and urban cities throughout the original 13 colonies, quickly learned to rely on what they called constables and night watchmen to control any disorder that might impede their new profit centers. The city of Boston is a clear example of the evolution of northern urban policing. In 1631, the then town of Boston formed the Boston Watch. These civilian watchmen were responsible for patrolling the streets, looking for murderers, thieves, and any fires that might break out, a common occurrence of the time. The position of watchman was not a coveted position for Bostonians. It was often doled out as punishment, and more often than not, watchmen spent their duty hours drunk and rowdy. On the other hand, constables, which were officially sanctioned law enforcement officers, dispensed justice, 
settled legal disputes among merchants, and had other random civic duties like surveying land. Per Dr. Gary Potter, an Eastern Kentucky University criminologist, constables, quote, were expected to control a dangerous underclass that included African Americans, immigrants, and the poor. In more rural communities, colonials instituted variations of something called the Frank Pledge System, a framework of communal policing with origins dating back to 11th century England. In these instances, community members were responsible for policing each other, with one law enforcement official overseeing the operation, the sheriff. Sheriffs were initially appointed by colonial governors and eventually became associated with corruption and greed. By the late 17th and early 18th centuries, it wasn't uncommon for sheriff appointees to outright refuse the unsavory positions. To combat this trend, colonial governors instead instituted local elections to select the sheriff, a custom that remains to this day. This borrowed system of policing became a staple in small rural communities in the American South, but it was actually the British colony of Barbados that had the most significant influence over law enforcement in that region. Specifically, the Barbadian policies of policing and legal restrictions of enslaved peoples. Slavery arrived in North America in 1619 and was a staple in the British colony at Barbados by the mid-1600s. By 1661, Barbados enacted the first official slave code. Slave codes were a collection of laws to restrict the movements and liberties of enslaved African people. More specifically, it established a long-standing, but false, ethos of white superiority over people of color. The following is a passage from the 1661 Barbadian Code. Negroes are a heathenish, brutish, and an uncertain, dangerous kind of people. Yet we well know by the right rule of reason and order we are not to leave them to the arbitrary, cruel, and outrageous wills of every evil-disposed person, but so far to protect them as we do many other goods and chattels. In other words, black people were considered savage and uncultured, property, and white people claimed they were protecting them from their own savagery by enslaving them. Hmm. As Bradley J. Nicholson explains in the American Journal of Legal History, English society was based on a top-down hierarchical system. Any person without a, quote, master, threatened the natural order and security of the ruling classes. Ruling classes. Otherwise known as white people. As the British continued to colonize the North American continent, code of laws to govern dominance over servants and slaves began to take shape in the image of Barbados's law. Restricting the movement of slaves became a crucial component in colonial southern law, and almost all of the southern colonies used some iteration of the Barbadian slave code. To enforce these racist laws, communities raised militia-style groups known as slave patrols. In many cases, the first instance of organized law enforcement agencies in a region. South Carolina established the first slave patrol in 1704. From 1712 to 1740, 
their state law even required the torture of slaves who had escaped. In 1724, Virginia militarized their slave patrols by transferring the responsibility to enforce laws from regular civilians to the state militia. And in 1754, the government began paying slave patrols directly for their service. According to criminal justice historian Dr. Gary Potter, quote, slave patrols had three primary functions. One, to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners runaway slaves. Two, to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts. And three, to maintain a form of discipline for slave workers who were subject to summary justice outside the law if they violated any plantation rules. Following the American Revolution of 1776, the 13 original English colonies unified under the federal government. Federal power was weak. States maintained autonomy over their laws and systems of enforcement. The new state laws were again just adaptations of former racist colonial laws. By the 1780s and 1790s, fear of slave revolts in the South prompted a further militarization of law-enforcing slave patrols. County courts authorized and organized these patrols, effectively making policing slavery a public safety initiative. They consisted of white men from every social class and socioeconomic circumstance, united in the common cause of defending themselves and their families from so-called black violence. The constant fear-mongering of rebellion and economic disruption fostered a sense of solidarity among whites, who seemed to have a new common enemy to replace the British, the black slave. In 1831, the unwarranted fear of blacks in America seemed to become a reality for the white plantation class in Southampton County, Virginia, when an enslaved black preacher named Nat Turner led a midnight revolt against the slaveholding population in the area. Turner's interpretation of the Bible told him that God did not intend for people to live the way he and other enslaved people were forced to live. He claimed God had sent him a message, and the only way forward for his people was to meet violence with violence. An estimated 50 white people were killed before Nat Turner's rebellion was put down. Most of the enslaved participants were then captured or killed. In retaliation, the state executed 56 participants including Nat Turner. Before it was over, local white militia groups had murdered an additional 100 to 150 black people, freed and enslaved, even though most had no involvement in the revolt. Nat Turner's rebellion soon became the main white argument for the unjust, extreme measures being implemented to control enslaved populations in the southern slave states. In addition to state-sanctioned slave patrols, American slave owners also employed private entities like slave catchers to hunt down escaped enslaved people. 
While slave catchers are often portrayed as the boogeyman of the Old South, the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C. points out, quote, Slave patrols were no less violent, as opposed to their privately hired slave catcher counterparts, in their control of African Americans. They beat and terrorized as well. Their distinction was that they were legally compelled to do so by local authorities. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As states and city populations grew throughout the United States, more centralized police forces began to take hold. In 1838, the city of Boston established the first municipal police department with six full-time officers. American cities like New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C. soon followed suit. Per historian Dr. Gary Potter, quote, Early American police departments shared two primary characteristics. They were notoriously corrupt and flagrantly brutal. This should come as no surprise in that police were under the control of local politicians. Seems not much has changed in that regard either. These new urban police forces grew exponentially over the next few decades, and by the early 1880s, 
every major U.S. city had a municipal police department. As slavery's economic profitability became increasingly apparent in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s, the growing number of enslaved people in the South continued to bolster fear of slave rebellions and economic disruption among whites. In response to the growing slavery abolition movement in the North, policing of free black communities and the movement of enslaved people became even more restrictive and maniacal. Passed in September of 1850 as part of the Compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was a vital piece of legislation that forced Northern law enforcement into the business of policing runaway slaves. Whereas before, once an enslaved person made it to a Northern state, there was little a slave owner could do to recapture them. The Fugitive Slave Act now made it a federal crime to aid a, quote, fugitive slave. A person could be fined up to $1,000 and jailed for refusing to assist in the capture of fugitives. Southern plantation owners now had the reach of the long arm of the law, from Louisiana to the Canadian border, to police enslaved people. For free people of color, this signaled a devastating shift in the federal government's position on the issue of slavery and racism. Now. Northern law enforcement agencies were actively employed in the surveillance and policing of black people, even if they had escaped enslavement. One thing to remember here, and something pertinent to people's attitudes in the North, then and now too, I suppose, racism against black people was also pervasive throughout the Northern states. As author Andrew Del Banco points out in an interview with NPR's Terry Gross in 2018, some Northerners were only in the abolitionist camp because they hated black people and didn't want them showing up in their neighborhoods or stealing their jobs. In essence, they wanted slavery to end so that black people could be shipped out of the country, either back to Africa or to Santo Domingo in the Caribbean. Of course, there were some whites in the North who opposed slavery on moral grounds. But it's important to remember that just because someone was an abolitionist working against slavery, it did not necessarily make them a proponent of equal rights. Another devastating blow to black civil rights during the antebellum era, the period just before the American Civil War, was the Dred Scott decision of 1857. Dred Scott was an enslaved black man whose owners had taken him from Missouri, a slaveholding state, into Illinois and the Wisconsin Territory, where slavery was illegal. When his owners later brought him back to Missouri, Scott sued for his freedom and claimed that because he had been taken into free U.S. territory, he had become legally freed and was no longer a slave. The Missouri State Court initially ruled that he was free, but the Missouri Supreme Court then reversed that decision. Later, a federal court upheld the Missouri precedent, leading Scott to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which issued a 7-2 decision against him. Considered one of the dirtiest Supreme Court decisions ever made, it essentially stripped all persons of African descent of their right to U.S. citizenship, regardless of whether they were considered enslaved or free. The decision once again reduced the legal status of black people to ownable property via the highest court in the land. 
Our entire American legal system is based on precedent. And this is the racist precedent our leaders were working with on the eve of war. The Dred Scott decision exacerbated the tensions that eventually led to the eruption of America's Civil War. The Civil War started in April 1861, and after four years and over 600,000 deaths, slavery finally ended, and everything changed. Or did it? Too often, in our school textbooks and American history classes, we're sold this fable that the Civil War was a war fought amongst brothers. It was a war about pride that it ended with the honorable surrender of the South and General Robert E. Lee and the demise of slavery, essentially the dawn of a new era of equality, and our nation came out stronger on the other side. Racism in America was legally over. But that simply isn't the truth. What really happened is the complete economic devastation of the southern United States for which Southern whites blamed formerly enslaved black people and abolitionists. The pot calling the kettle the N-word. What else is new? For every new law passed to bolster equality for black people during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, there was a loophole enacted for racists to exploit. When it became clear in late 1864 that the South was going to lose the Civil War, White Southerners began to reckon with the realization that slavery would also end. Congress was busy drafting the 13th Amendment, which would effectively end chattel slavery in the United States. If that happened, how would whites keep black people in their place? They would need to maintain the upper hand. If they were going to return to any semblance of white law and order, they needed to figure out a legal solution quickly. Take the editor of the Lynchburg Virginian at the time. Quote, Stringent police regulations may be necessary to keep freedmen from overburdening the towns and depleting the agricultural regions of labor. The civil authorities should also be fully empowered to protect the community from this new imposition. The magistrates and municipal officers everywhere should be permitted to hold a rod in terror over these wandering idle creatures. Nothing short of the most efficient police system will prevent strolling, vagrancy, theft, and the utter destruction of our industrial system. The 13th Amendment did not guarantee civil rights or ensure equality, however. Plantations ravaged by the war took advantage of a loophole in the new amendment. Slavery could still exist, quote, as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted. End quote. Seemingly overnight, Southern plantations reopened as for-profit prisons. Their target? Newly freed people of color. Savages, as they called them. Supported by a range of new racist laws, these new prisons started filling with formerly enslaved people. A slew of new vagrancy laws cropped up throughout the country. This dramatically limited the movement of free blacks. If they went to a new city and started pounding the pavement looking for a job, they could easily be arrested as an unemployed vagrant loitering on the streets. Often, 
black prisoners would be auctioned off to the highest white bidder to work off their sentence. Starting in 1865, black codes were also enacted to further restrict the movements of the newly freed. Black codes were legal iterations of the former slave codes. Mississippi and South Carolina were the first states to enact them, and other states quickly followed suit. Many states' black codes included additional taxes, rules about where black people could live, what jobs they could legally hold, where they could be and when, and other arbitrary laws intended to make life generally difficult for them. Many of these racist laws remained intact in one form or another until the civil rights movement of the 1960s. In 1865, Mississippi passed a law mandating the black population show proof of employment each year. If they broke their employment contract, which many could not read to begin with, they would be subject to fines and arrest. That same year, South Carolina passed a law that required black people to pay an additional tax of $10 to $100 to actually hold any job that was not a servant or a farmer. In other words, they were taxed and tried for simply being black. Federal troops were stationed in the South to keep the peace during the turbulent Reconstruction period which followed the Civil War, but their efforts to stem discrimination and intimidation of newly freed black people were futile. Or, perhaps, they really didn't try hard enough. By 1866, the Ku Klux Klan had formed with one of the Confederacy's most famous generals at the helm, Nathan Bedford Forrest. The KKK picked up where the slave patrols left off. They used extra-legal violence to restrict the movements of African Americans, prevented voting, and intimidated black people from running for public office. Again, not much has changed in this regard, except maybe the sheets. The vigilante terror of the KKK eventually gave way to white community-led violence towards black people in the 1880s with the rise of public lynchings. Whole towns participated in the murders and torture of black people and even sold souvenirs like commemoration postcards and remnants of the victim's teeth. According to the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Black People, between 1882 and 1968, there were 3,446 lynchings of black victims. Where was law enforcement during these extrajudicial vigilante killings? More often than not, police offered no resistance or actively protected the perpetrators. In some cases, they themselves were perpetrators of the violence and killings. State-sanctioned and vigilante violence against black people continued for decades. The turbulent 1960s saw the violent suppression of civil rights protests. In response to growing public criticism over police brutality, most major police departments unionized in the 1970s. An ironic twist, since police were used as a tool to suppress unionization in the 1880s, 90s, and early 1900s. Police unionization reinforced the us-versus-them mentality, 
creating an even more insulated community for law enforcement. It made protecting and serving the communities they policed secondary to the job title of cop, and it provided a buffer for their brutality. Before the ink on the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was dry, a new enemy emerged, drugs. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. In a press conference in June of 1971, President Richard Nixon declared drugs public enemy number one. And in the 1980s, President Ronald Reagan declared a literal war on drugs, which led to today's full-scale militarization of police and the current prison industrial complex. Who did this mandate primarily affect? People of color and liberal activists. Last month, the President of the United States said nothing you young kids would do would have any effect on him. Well, I suggest to the President of the United States, if he want to know how much effect you youngsters can have on the President, he should make one long-distance phone call to the LBJ Ranch and ask that boy how much effect you can have. Former Nixon aide John Ehrlichman said in a 2004 interview, quote, We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt both communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. Of course they did. President Bill Clinton then passed the crime bill in the 1990s that assigned mandatory minimums to drug offenses and enacted the 1033 program, or LESO, Law Enforcement Support Offices. This new program allowed the transfer of surplus military equipment to local police departments to fight crime. Today, the United States has only 5% of the world's population but 25% of the world's prison population. We're living in an era of mass incarceration and militant policing. Not much has changed since the slave patrols of the 1700s. It is now abundantly clear that all of this disproportionately affects communities of color. On average, black people are incarcerated at a rate of 5 to 1 over whites. In some states, that number doubles to 10 to 1. In 2020, 32% of the U.S. population was composed of African Americans and Latinx people, compared to those same groups making up 56% of the U.S. incarcerated population. It's illogically disproportionate until you factor in racism and law enforcement as a key ingredient. Still, this doesn't even begin to factor in the devastating impact of actual infiltration of modern American law enforcement by card-carrying white supremacists. The FBI reported in 2006 that there were known white supremacists inside law enforcement agencies and further infiltration was an active threat. This is an important contemporary issue we'll cover more in depth in episodes to come. 
The purpose of our modern justice system doesn't seem to be to de-escalate violence, protect and serve, or rehabilitate. Its purpose is to arrest as many undesirable people as possible, using the most destructive weapons and dehumanizing means available, and send offenders, mostly black and brown folks, away for as long as possible. Isn't that just modern slavery by another name? It's not that good law enforcement officers don't exist. They absolutely do. But too often the good ones are run out of policing when they go against the system, either by the police departments or they leave of their own volition because they get too fed up. In 2006, for example, Cariel Horn, a former Buffalo, New York police officer, intervened when a white officer attempted to choke a black suspect, but was later fired for doing so mere months before she was eligible to receive her full pension. Only recently did the New York State Supreme Court rule that her pension be reinstated. In 2011, former Baltimore police detective Joseph Crystal reported the beating of a drug suspect by a fellow officer, and his testimony helped secure convictions against that officer and the sergeant who helped facilitate the beating. Harassment and abuse from his colleagues followed, and led Crystal to resign from his job. There are many more instances of cops who were focused on honoring their oath and truly serving their community, such as Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman, who put his life on the line to steer angry crowds away from lawmakers during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But this mindset of inequity, dehumanization, and white supremacy is systemic and generational within law enforcement culture, it's the fundamental basis for why policing systems exist in America. It is quite a remarkable sight, especially when you see those SWAT officers. They have the helmets on, they have the large shields, they have the clubs, some are wearing gas masks. None of that has been necessary thus far. Even officers who showed support for Black Lives Matter protests by taking a knee or sitting with the crowds of protesters in the summer of 2020 later fired rubber bullets and tear gas at them. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District, State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 20-12646. We, the jury, in the above-entitled matter as to Count 1, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. Although some rare accountability was seen in the murder of George Floyd, we are still far from justice. In just the 24 hours after former police officer Derek Chauvin's guilty conviction for killing George Floyd in Minneapolis in 2020, six additional people were killed by police. While Chauvin's conviction matters, we must remember that an officer being suspended, fired, prosecuted, or convicted is the rare exception, not the general rule. Video evidence, reliable witnesses, numerous previous complaints, and testimony from fellow officers and medical experts are only some of the things that had to perfectly line up for this conviction to occur. Video evidence is often the catalyst for any form of accountability, something that only recently became a factor. Without it, victims are rarely given any widespread attention, especially from the media. 
Black Lives Matter activists around the country, along with advocacy organizations like the Leadership Council for Civil and Human Rights, Campaign Zero, Dream Defenders, Black Youth Project 100, the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, the Advancement Project, Showing Up for Racial Justice, Race Forward, Color of Change, Equal Justice Initiative, Mothers Against Police Brutality, and numerous others are working to change the conversation around race and to stop violence and police brutality in marginalized communities. They've been instrumental in achieving some hard-fought victories, but much remains to be done, and they need our help. Their names alone now symbolize the issue. George Floyd, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland. So you gonna, you gonna drag me out of my own car? Get out of the car! And then you I will light me? you up! Get out! Wow. Now! Botham Jean, Freddie Gray, Philando Castile, Laquan McDonald, Walter Scott, Adam Toledo. and so many more. Black and brown people dying at the hands of police. A common tragedy in America that now sparks protests, raises serious questions about how police do and should interact with black and brown citizens. So where do we begin? Let me pose a series of what-ifs. What if police were required to live in the communities they policed? How might that change their approach? What if we reallocated some resources and directed certain responsibilities away from police and invested in mental health service providers, social workers, religious leaders, educators, and victim advocates? What if we helped people meet their basic needs? so some wouldn't be driven to crime as an option. Instead of hiring more police officers, what if we invested in healthcare, drug treatment, housing, and educational and job opportunities in underserved communities? What if we paid more attention to who we elected as sheriffs and prosecutors? These people set the tone for law enforcement within our communities. What if we called on our representatives and elected leaders to end the drug war? What if we ended pre-trial detention so that only those who are accused of serious crimes and pose a real threat to the community are incarcerated? What if police misconduct settlements came from police officer salaries, department budgets, and their pension funds instead of city budgets? What if there was accountability at the community level from civilian police review boards? In late April 2021, the Department of Homeland Security announced an internal audit to weed out racially motivated extremists in their ranks, citing them as the most pressing terrorism-related threat to our country today. All branches of the military had a similar extremism stand-down in 2021. How about we do the same for our law enforcement agencies nationwide? If their practices are indeed just, they should have nothing to hide. 
What if we dismantled the old way while also building a better, more equitable system of community policing with intention and input from all the people it should be protecting? And what if good cops just held bad cops accountable? If we finally addressed our racist history and confronted our ever-present white supremacist systems and institutions, maybe we just might reduce crime, violence, and needless bloodshed for everyone. That's all for today. Join me next time as we shine a light on another shameful chapter of our country's racist past. We can't beat the problem if we can't see it. You've been listening to F Your Racist History. If you like what you've heard, do us a favor and rate us on whichever platform you listen on. It helps. You can get more information on this and other episodes at FYourRacistHistory.com or on your favorite podcast app. F Your Racist History is produced by Gold Mill Group and distributed by Sounder. This episode was researched, fact-checked, and written by Maggie Coomer and Jasmine Brand. Links to source material and references are included in the show notes. Our editor is Ken Pendola. Music is courtesy of Flatfoot56. Jamie Moeller is our producer. And I'm the executive producer and your host, Christian Piccolini. Thank you for joining. See you next time. And as always, F your racist history. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.